Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. On this side, I realize it's a, it's a big thing to be a dad as well. You know, I, the temptation for me is to want to say so many things in the limited time that we have. And so I'm actually going to stuff in a couple extra points here right at the front end. Uh, it's not really part of our passage. But would you look at Galatians 4 verse 6? Just uh, because it fits the occasion, we read, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, a spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And I just want to just briefly mention that one of the ministries of the Spirit, as we're talking about living in the Spirit, living by faith, living in the Gospel, the first time Paul talks about the ministry of the Spirit is here in Galatians 4, 6, when he says the work of the Spirit here is to testify to us, to, ha- to have us cry out from within, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. It testifies of our sonship that He is our Father. And uh, I can't give this whole sermon, but just bottom line, um, this cry, Abba, Father, isn't just, oh, Daddy, I love you, Daddy, I love you. But it's in troubled times. It's Jesus uh, at Gethsemane crying out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, uh, your will, not mine. Could you take this cup from me? Your will, not mine. It's a, it's a, a cry of desperation so that what I have here in Galatians 4, 6 is when Christians go through troubled times, the evidence of the gospel in our lives is that we have the spirit that instinctively cries out, Appa, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. There's something, there's an intuitive response in the heart of the Christian that has met a great Savior God that when trouble comes, we turn to him and we cry out, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Even as our little kids, right? When they're, when they're in trouble, what do they do? You know, our boys, they're in trouble. Daddy, daddy, daddy. And I go to him and sometimes that's not enough. Then they go, mommy, mommy, mommy. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's... But in any case, that's, it's just an instinctive thing for children to cry out to their daddy in troubled times. And that is evidence that the Spirit is in you. The work of the Spirit isn't just to have us do things. The work of the Spirit is to reassure us that we have an Abba Father to turn to. Just one other thing I want to sneak in here is Galatians 6, 6. Anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor. <laughs> uh, your pastors did not ask me to preach on this, uh, but uh, I just wanted to throw this in because uh, I get to do it without like looking like I'm asking for anything. But uh, one of the descriptions Paul has of a community that has received the gospel and has transformed by the gospel is in Galatians 6, that we carry one another's burdens and thus we fulfill the law of love, that we help each other. And interestingly, Paul specifically here in verse 6 points out the privilege and the responsibility for those who receive God's word to share with those who teach and preach God's word. And I just want to encourage Harvest, take care of your pastors. Take care of your pastors that they can faithfully preach the gospel to you without distraction and without hindrance. And I'm not saying that because I don't think you're... In fact, I, I, you look like you're doing a great job. You have a lot of fun with PD and POFO and you know all your good guys and... Uh, <laughs> Um, 
I feel a lot of love and a lot of, a lot of fun and uh, just a, an encouragement. Now, one of the signs of a gospel-transformed community is that we, we help one another. We carry each other's burdens. And it is good and proper for you to take care of your pastors, that they would be faithful in the preaching of God's word. Well, our passage today is Galatians 5, from verse 19 to 26. Allow me to read that together for us. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Well, our passage today contains a very familiar few verses here. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I trust uh, somewhere, for those of us who've grown up in church, it's a passage we had memorized from our youth. And for many, many, for most of my life, when I would come across that verse, those verses, it was kind of a checklist, right? You got love and joy and peace and patience. You kind of go through the nine uh, items and you try to take an assessment all right, well, I've got, you know, a little bit of patience, a little bit of gentleness, but I've got to work on the joy, or I've got to work on the self-control. And we kind of break it down and kind of use it as a, a benchmark or a guide for the kind of person I'm going to try to become. Now, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that that is exactly what you're not supposed to do. <laughs> That's exactly what you're not supposed to do. I've led... Bible studies that are structured just like that. All right, here are the nine fruit. Now, which circle the ones you're good at? Circle the ones you're bad at. Let's let's now let's try to work on the ones. We're, that's exactly what you're not supposed to do. Paul says, "This is not the fruit of the Christian. This is the fruit of the Spirit." Meaning, this is not something that we produce. The Christian life is not good people trying to work harder to be slightly better people. Good people trying to do good things. Rather, the Christian life is that the gospel, Christ, the Spirit has created a new creation in us. And when that Spirit and gospel is at work, this is what comes out. You see? It is exactly to turn it inside out to say, all right, now let's, let's try to be like this. No, it's telling us this is what a gospel-transformed, spirit-anointed person looks like. You see, the instinct, the self-reliant, self-effort instinct runs deep. That we, our first response tends to be to trying to do that which only the spirit can do. Paul says in Galatians that if we could do, then Christ died for nothing. We don't need a gospel. We don't need a savior. We just have to go do. Instead, I'd like to point to this list 
as a litmus test, as an indicator, a way of telling whether we're living in the gospel, whether we're living in the spirit, living by faith. It's not telling us, now let's try to have love and joy and peace, trying to staple these fruits on the tree. Rather, it's telling us, let's see if this tree is healthy. This is what's supposed to come out. It's kind of a, an assessment opportunity to help us gauge whether we're living in the spirit, whether we've received the gospel. Or in other words, this list invites self-evaluation. And as I mentioned yesterday, allowed me to repeat again. I think it is proper for us to reassess our spiritual condition, that we would be honest with ourselves and with God as to whether we see clear evidence of the work of the gospel in our lives. And that's what this list gives us the opportunity to do. It kind of shows us what it would look like if we had the gospel in our lives. Well, what I'd like to do is forward the slide, but what I'd like to do, uh, okay, thank you, is we're going to take kind of a macro look at the lists that we have here in our passage today. The first part lists the work of the flesh, right? And we've broken it down into these four categories. And if you look at the four, four groupings, uh, commentators are quick to point out that you can group them under these headings. You've got sexual sins, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. You've got religious sins, idolatry, witchcraft. You've got relational sins, a lot of these, hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, ambition, dissension, factions, envy. And then they call it sins of excess, drunkenness, and orgies. Now my guess is if you look at this list, some of us are feeling a little bit nervous because you got that sexual immorality, impurity, discord, jealousy, you know, and you're feeling kind of, oh man, that's not looking good. Others of us are looking at like drunkenness, orgies, idolatry, witchcraft, and we're feeling all right. We're feeling all right. Go ahead, preacher. <laughs> Keep on going because we're, we're, you know, we're, we're feeling all right. And, but I'd like to suggest that for all of us, we have the works of the flesh probably a lot more than we realize. We have the works of the flesh probably a lot more than we realize. And that is a serious indictment. Because Paul says, in no uncertain terms, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if this is true, that we're living like this, then we, this is that self-assessment question. I mean, do we or have we inherited or not inherited the kingdom of God? The main problem of the works of the flesh is not that you look at pornography or that you're given to drunkenness or that you're always fighting with people. I mean, those are problems that are listed but the bigger problem, the deeper problem I would like to suggest is this list reflects, whoops, sorry, this list, oh, that was right, I'm sorry, this list reflects a heart that feels like it deserves more, okay, so let me quote John Piper here on this, he writes, the flesh is convinced of its own merit, 
and expects God and man and nature to pay dues by giving the satisfaction it desires. When these payments are not made, the flesh reacts the way it does, not to earn anything, but because it feels that it already had earned what it didn't get. Do you hear that? This list of the works of the flesh, Piper describes as what happens when someone who feels like we deserve something, we didn't get what we feel we deserve, and so we're angry, and so we have fits of rage, and so we're jealous, and so there's immorality and gluttony and and debauchery. It's because we feel we deserve something we didn't get. It is the opposite side of legalism. Or it's, I'm sorry, not the opposite. It's just, it's just the other side of the coin. Legalism is trying to earn something by our effort. Here in the works of the flesh, it's not trying to earn. It's saying, I already earned. Give me what I deserve. And so you're envious and jealous because, well, because somebody else got what you deserve. Or you're always fighting. We talked about this yesterday. We're fighting because we didn't get what we wanted. Now we can add to that. And our wants are legitimate. Our wants and desires are justified. Our wants and desires are appropriate. We deserve what we want. And so we're upset that we're not getting it. Again, if legalism is trying to earn something, this this list says we've already earned something, but we're not getting it. F.F. Bruce, oh, so not getting what we feel we deserve would be one way of describing the works of the flesh. It's living out of this, but I deserve better. I deserve better. F.F. That's not the order I... That's okay. For uh, one respected New Testament scholar, he writes this, describing the works of the flesh. For Paul... Flesh is not rooted in sensuality, but rather in religious rebellion in the form of self-righteousness, which was, in his terms, a boasting in one's flesh. I'm going to put those two together, Piper and Bruce. I feel like what they're saying is the essential posture of the flesh is I deserve better. It is this feeling of entitlement, the feeling of I'm worth more. And some of us, we may not feel like we're terribly self-righteous people. But uh, I think what's revealed is when bad things happen. I mean, when good things happen, no one complains. No one says, oh, but I don't deserve good things. This is terrible, terrible. Lord, why? Why are you giving me good things? I really shouldn't. No one has problems with getting good things. But, But when bad things happen, when bad things happen, all of a sudden we become theologians and philosophers. Why, Lord, why? How could you? You know, where are you? And all of a sudden we have a big problem with it. Because at the core, we feel like we deserve better. We don't really feel like we deserve condemnation. We don't feel like we really deserve hell. We feel like we deserve a lot better. And if God doesn't give it to us, now we got an issue. You see, F.F. Bruce calls that, that's just self-righteous arrogance. 
to think, to presume so much for ourselves when the gospel says we're far worse than we realize. Living in the flesh is feeling like we deserve better, which is why, oh, okay. We're not getting what we feel we deserve or allow me to put it in more broad terms that we've been using this weekend. It's the living to get mode. Living in the flesh is the living to get. And if you look at the list above, I think it fits the categories pretty well. The sexual sins and the sins of excess, number one, this group one and group four. You see that as an expression of living to get immediate gratification. Immediate gratification and pleasure. We want sex. We want alcohol. We want it without boundaries. We want it without restraint. We want it. We want it now. We want it whenever we can get it. Immediate, I'm living to get. Break all the rules in the process. That's fine. Living to get. The relational, whoops. The relational, I'm like dropping and breaking everything. Sorry, hold on. (laughs) Okay, the relational category we recognized yesterday as we fight because there's something we want that we're not getting. And so that's why there's hatred and jealousy and rage and factions and envy because we want something that we're not getting. We want comfort. We want our reputation. We want our rights. We want gain. We want appreciation. We want respect. We want control. We want self-respect. We want it and we're going to fight when we don't get it. You see, it's a living out of the living to get mode. That's why we fight. Or idolatry and witchcraft, the religious sins. um, I mean, you got to think back to the first century where there was idolatry and witchcraft. And we might feel somewhat safe that we don't, we're not like doing voodoo dolls and, you know, Asherah poles and what. And yet, I'd like to suggest that are we also not much like the first century pagan, trying to secure blessings and avoid curses through our own religious means. So I'll do our quiet time, go to church, give money because God will bless and he won't curse. You see, it's the same thing. That's not gospel living. That's the same living to get, trying to avoid curses and secure blessings through our religious means. It's the living to get mode. I'd like you to contrast that with the fruits of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. When you look at the fruit of the spirit, you got love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And I'd like to suggest that when you kind of dwell on that list, it contrasts the works of the flesh by this attitude of, and the, and the fruit of the spirit, we've, we, we're getting more than what we deserve. The gospel, living in the spirit, living in the gospel is what I deserve is condemnation. I'm getting far better than what I deserve. Or, as we've been saying, it's I've already received. It's living out of the I have already received. And so there's love. There's love because I've been so loved. I've been overwhelmed with love. I've received so much love. And so loving others, I mean, that's easy. That's natural. I've already, it's overflow. I've been so loved. Joy, I mean, joy because I've received. I've loved. I mean, so much. I've, I've been given so much. There's joy. 
There's peace. There's wholeness. There's, there's contentment. It is well with my soul because I've received so much. I've received far more than what I deserve. And so living in the spirit is living in the gospel, is living in the reality that God has already given me so much. I'm living out of what I've received. Living in the flesh is the, I want, I need, I'm more, and I deserve more. And so there's anger and strife and debauchery and indulgences. What does living in the flesh look like? I see someone who's always trying to get something. They're discontent. They're dissatisfied. They're always, they're always trying to get something. You need to move ahead in your career. You need to like move ahead in your life stage. You, you, you need a little, few more friends. You need a little more love. You're always just reaching and grabbing and like this. I got to prove myself. I got to have more. I got to, I got to, I got to. You live restlessly. Living in the spirit describes, I am satisfied. I've already received more than I could ever dare hope I could receive. It reminds me of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 has become such a favorite psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I don't need any more. Because the Lord is my shepherd. I don't, I don't need to gain anymore. I'm not living in the living to get mode anymore. No, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I want. He leads me to green pastures. Quiet waters. He restores my soul. Doesn't that sound like love and joy and peace? Right? Green pastures, quiet waters. The Lord is my shepherd. Another way, I think, to illustrate the difference is to use Jesus' teaching. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Living in the flesh is the, oh, what shall we eat? What shall we wear? What shall we drink? I need to get this. I need to get that. I need to establish my career. I need, to, I need more money. I need more time. I need more freedom. I need more control. I need, I need this. I need that. And Jesus says, you're acting just like a pagan. You're acting just like a pagan. You're acting like, like you're the only person who's there to take care of you. You're a spiritual orphan in this cosmic world. But the living in the fruit of the Spirit is, I have a Father who's going to take care of me. I have a Father who's going to... And for all the parents, I mean, this is just dads, dad, fathers, dad, you know. I mean, my little boys, you know, if they ever... At night, like, they go into the pantry and they're taking, like, granola bars and, and water bottles and, you know, little goldfish. And they take it up to their room and I go, Elijah, Caleb, what are you doing? And they go, well, well, you know, I mean, you fed us today, but... Tomorrow's another day, you know, I mean, I don't know, you know, uh, who knows how you'll feel tomorrow. I mean, you know, we got to, we got to, we got to look out for ourselves. I mean, that's not the way it is, right? That's not the way it is. They don't worry. They don't worry about what they're going to eat tomorrow. They don't worry about where their next meal is coming from. Why? Because they have a daddy. They have a mommy. Is that how we act? Is that how we act? Hey, we have a daddy. We have a good daddy. Or do we act like, man, if we don't take care of ourselves, if we're not putting into our Roth IRAs, I mean, if we're not looking out for ourselves, man, who knows what's going to happen because no one else is going to take care of me. See, that's living in the flesh. 
If that's the way you're living, Paul says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you recognize this woman? Probably not. Her name is Henrietta Howland Green. All from the very reliable source of Wikipedia, we now know that she was a notorious miser. She never turned on the heat, didn't use hot water. She wore one black dress and one set of undergarments that she only changed after they had worn out. Didn't buy clothes. She ate mostly pies that cost 15 cents. I mean, this is back in the late 1800s. One tale tells how she spent a night looking, scavenging through her home, trying to find a lost two-cent stamp. She didn't want to pay for office space, so she, she did investments and stuff in banking, and she would just go into one of these New York banks with suitcases of paper, just there on the bank floor, transacted all her business because she didn't want to pay for office space. When her son broke a leg, Hetty, they call her, took him from a hospital. He had gone to the hospital, but after they recognized her and that she had some money, she took her away so that she wouldn't have to pay for treatment. The leg contracted gangrene and had to be amputated. When her children had grown older, she moved repeatedly from small apartment to small apartment in Brooklyn Heights and Hoboken, New Jersey, mainly to avoid enough residency permanence so that she wouldn't have to pay taxes. In her old age, she had a bad hernia, but refused an operation that would have cost $150. Hetty Green died in New York City, July 3rd, 1916, at the age of 81. Her estimated net worth at that time was 100 to 200 million dollars, making her arguably the richest woman in the world at her time. In today's terms, that is 1.9 to 3.8 billion dollars. She was a gabillionaire. That wouldn't pay to get her hernia treated or save the leg of her son. Would scavenge around for two cent stamps and not use hot water. You know what I want to say? That's a lot of Christians. That's a lot of Christians. That are not living in the gospel. They have no idea how much they have. And they're still living to gain. Living to get trying to secure, not believing that in Christ an inheritance beyond human calculations has been given to us. Because we're not living in the gospel. Because we're living like beggars, orphans. Paul says, you see, what makes you think you have the gospel then? If that's how you're living. Maybe some of us might have asked, so what does it look like if I'm living in the gospel? What does it look like? All right, all this theology sounds nice, but 
give me a picture. What am I supposed to do? How many of you have like been struggling? So, so now what am I supposed to do with this retreat? You know, what am I supposed to do? You see this self-reliant instinct goes deep. We're so American in some ways. You know, we just got to do something. And yet, some of us might wonder, all right, should I just pray more? Read my Bible? Meditate on these verses. Memorize these verses. You know, read my pray harder. Go on mission. Serve the poor. Be generous with my time and money. All right, buy your pastor's dinner. I mean, what am I supposed to do? I'd be good to do any and all of those things. But the picture that Paul gives of a life that's been transformed by the gospel is it looks like this. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like when you're living in the gospel, when you're living in the spirit. It's not telling us to do that. It's telling you if you're in the gospel, this is what it looks like. Or another way to put it is, The point is not to act like your soul is satisfied. The point is to have your soul satisfied. (laughs) Do you understand? (laughs) The point is not look like you have riches and joy and blessings. The point is experience your riches and joys and blessings so that there's love and joy and peace and patience. The point is not try to act like You're rich and blessed. The point is to understand how rich and blessed you are. Or another way to put it is the point is not to staple fruit on the tree. The point is to water the tree. Or another way to put it is the battle for the Christian is not to go and try to be like this. The battle for the Christian is to experience and live in the gospel so that this is just what happens when you're living in the gospel. Or another way to put it is... The application practical section of Galatians is simply going back to living in the gospel. You live in the gospel and practically this is what it's supposed to look like in its expression. But how do you do that? You go back to the beginning and you understand the gospel. I'd like to take some time as we conclude to give you my picture of what I think living in the gospel looks like. And my understanding of gospel living and looking at the fruit of the spirit. Here's my picture and portrait. So what does it mean? It seems so abstract. Let me try to flesh it out with a few characteristics. Portrait of gospel living. Number one, we are not undone by troubles. Maybe you have trouble at work, trouble in your marriage, with your kids, finances, health. For too many, we just get discouraged, frustrated, angry, bitter, upset. We fight for God's like fight or flight. You know, <laughs> you get this response. Or maybe it's not so big. Maybe it's just bad traffic. You lost your cell phone. You got an annoying boss. Your coworker is racist. Your kids spilled your milk. They woke you up at night three times. You've had terrible sleeping time here at this retreat. And you're just annoyed. <laughs> Have you noticed there are some people... Little things happen and they fall apart. You know, I lost my phone. Oh, no, no, you know, stress. Oh, no, what am I going to do? And you can't sleep. You can't rest. You're just so you are undone. Other people, you know, crash the car. Well, praise God, we have insurance. You know, I don't know. You're, you're like 
And it's not just a West Coast, California, hey, man, we're just relaxed. I mean, if that's the case, if that's the case, if that's the case, that's, that's not any more godly than the uptight East Coaster, all right? That's, that's just, that's not godliness. But for some people, do you notice, little things just unravel them. For someone who has the gospel, we are not undone by our troubles because we believe that God is good and in control. I, I'm telling you, Romans 8.28 is such a good one. And we believe that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so it's okay. It's okay. Because we've got a God who's bigger than our problems. And we've got a God who's going to use our problems for good. It's okay if the church isn't perfect. It's okay if you're not perfect. It's okay if your kids aren't perfect. It's okay if your job and your pastor and your marriage. I mean, that's all broken and messed up. Welcome to the real world. That's just the way it is. But it's okay. Because we have a God that we can stand on. And we're not so undone. I have uh, one couple in our church. This is simplifying a fair bit, but for her, she demands that her husband be her greatest offender. And he should. He should. But if he's not, I mean, she explodes. You will be. The man I have intended for you to pee. (laughs) He's on the other side. He hates conflict. He hates conflict. He'd rather settle for superficial band-aid peace than deal with conflict and get to resolutions. And so his his point is, I demand that you stop fighting. (laughs) And I'm going to fight you (laughs) because you keep fighting me. But that they demand it so much and that they fight about it so much. You see, do you understand? Why is that so undoing if your spouse isn't exactly what you want? It just makes me feel like you have nothing else you're holding on to but your spouse. There is no greater God. Your fortress, your rock, your shield, your strong tower. Your shepherd, your king, your Lord. You have nothing else. And so you're clinging on to the very little that you have. We're not undone by our troubles. Second picture is that we are thankful. We are so thankful because we are always receiving and we're always receiving more than what we deserve. And God is always good and God is always working for our goodness I mean for the Christian in the gospel it is always always God is good to me and loving and always giving me more than what I deserve the the gospel entrenched Christian always feels unworthy and overwhelmed with the kindness received i think this this thing of giving thanks the practice of gratitude if i can call it that is i think such a good partner with the life of faith because the life of faith basically says 
I believe that God is good. I believe that he's my good shepherd. I believe that he's working all things for my good. I believe that he's my provider. And the life of thanksgiving says, now let me count the ways. How you've taken care of me today. How you've provided for my job. How you've taken care of my kids. How you saved us from that danger. And how you've provided this home. And how you keep kept us from this. Da, 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 and you just list all the ways. I mean, I don't, you, do you understand? Like, they, it's just... It says, here it is in your, on, in the verses, and then as you meditate on those verses, you realize, that's not just a verse, that's true in my life, and let me show you how, you see, look at all this. And there are times when I would go off to a cafe, and I'm just journaling, and I just, just start listing all the things I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for my family, I'm thankful for my church, I'm thankful for, we just moved our new home, I'm thankful for Kids, I'm thankful for the gospel. I'm thankful for the privilege of being called to ministry. I'm not a rich man, but my goodness, I feel like God's provided for all my family. I'm so much richer than financially even than I thought I'd ever be. Wow, you know, I have a home, I have a car, I have, you know, like I am, I am rich, I am blessed. I, I have so much that God has given me. The third thing is that we are kind and generous. Is that having, being so loved and protected, we are freed to love others. We spent a lot of time last night. So that the sign, the evidence of the gospel in your life, Paul writes, is faith expressing itself through love. Or in other words, gospel living, the fruit of that is a life of Love and that life of love is the fulfillment of the law. If the gospel is not making you a more loving person, then you've got to really question whether you got the gospel. Because the evidence of the gospel is you are becoming a loving person. Now, just to be clear, just to be clear, some people are just more kind hearted by nature. Some people are just kind of mean by nature. Some people have fun helping people. Other people have fun punching people. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, now that in itself is not neither here nor there. All right. That's it's the, the, the kind hearted person that wants to help isn't isn't living the gospel any more than the person who has fun, like tripping them over and making them fall and thinking that's hilarious. I mean, that's that's do you understand that that's just being a person. I mean, having a personality, different kind of personality, different things that make you happy. But there is a difference between that and gospel-generated love and kindness. I have, a, again, one person in my church. He said, um, Pastor Paul, you know, you've really made me question if I'm really safe because I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice guy, and I do nice things. I try to be a responsible person. But You know, any non-Christian can do that. So you take that all away. What evidence of gospel-generated love is there in my life? But when we are freed to love, then those forms can be wide and varied. Maybe that means you want to go on a mission trip or you want to comfort a troubled friend or maybe you want to reach out to newcomers. Here's one that I've emphasized at our church. I think one of the signs of a gospel transformed community is we care for strangers. We care for newcomers. It's not just, hey, I want to be with my friends. I'm going to hang with, you know, I just stay in my comfort zone. It's I already have love. I already have friends. Let's go welcome some other people. Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to grab and cling for myself. 
Who's going to welcome me? Who's going to befriend me? Who's going to, I don't need, I have that already. And so now I'm free to go serve and love. I think a great one is intercession. That we were kind and generous because now we just find ourselves, this is what I find, is when you have this kind of a God and you live in this kind of a world, it's only natural that you want to pray that this God would help this world. I mean, Father's Day, I think of it like, Dad, do you remember the first time you got your power drill? Your first power drill? You know, like, when I first got my power drill, I was looking for loose screws. I mean, you know, I was just looking for them. I mean, man, where are those screws? I'm going to find them. You know, they're going to go into the, where they want to go. That's kind of like what it means. In that, in that, you know what I'm saying? Like you have something so powerful. And now you're, you, you bring it on. Let's see the problem. Because now you have a solution to the problem. What happens when you have that God in your life, right? You have an answer to the problem. And intuitively, instinctively, you just find yourself saying, Oh, Lord, my Lord, my God, help them too. Or you give financially. I mean, finances, I think, is one of the most concrete ways to see whom you're trusting. You give with joy and compassion because, not because you're a compassionate and responsible person, but because God has been so rich and good to you so that your giving honors God, not honors you. If you remember, we mentioned that earlier. Or maybe you're just more prone to notice other people. You're not so worried about what other people are thinking of you. You can actually notice silent cries of people right next to you, perhaps even now. The point of a gospel transformed person is they, they are now freed to love, freed to care, freed. They're available. They've got heart space because they're not so worried about themselves. Finally, they are addicted to God because this whole world, this gospel world, all hinges on seeing, beholding, Resting in, delighting in, savoring, enjoying, being glad in God. And that has so defined your reality that to lose that God is to lose your whole internal gospel world. And so you guard it and you pursue it because you realize vision leaks, faith leaks, and you have to keep being reminded, you have to keep tasting and seeing and being embraced by this God, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Daddy, hold me, hold me, hold me, and you keep feeling it and hearing it and believing it. And you realize that is the lifeline to your very existence. And in so doing, I'd like to suggest, I think one of the signs of Gospel living is scripture becomes sweet. Scripture becomes sweet because scripture is the most direct revelation you have of this God that you're addicted to. Of this God and his story and his promises, who he is and what he does. So that now when you read scripture, it is sweet to your soul because it is now the story you're a part of. This God who is so good to his people and so good to me. 
Just a quick side thing. I, 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 I've been recommending. So, okay, if you want to know practically what to do, I mean, just on the practical side, I suggest meditate on those verses that we passed out. If you want another one, is read the Psalms. The Psalms are just so... I didn't used to like the Psalms. I wasn't, I'm a Pauline kind of guy, if you know it. Anyway, not that... Skip it. It doesn't matter. But um, the Psalms have become such a vibrant picture of what a life of faith, a life in the gospel looks like. Because here is David and the other psalmists living in a broken, messed up, fallen world with danger and despair and problems. And they're clinging to their fortress and their shield and their rock and their hope and they're trusting in God. And it's such an honest picture of living in a real world and having a mighty God. I, I just, I just read, there's one, one time I was, I was at the encouragement of some Christian authors. I'm like, okay, I'm going to memorize some ver- Psalms. I want to memorize some Psalms. I started memorizing Psalm 62 and I got to verse one. Uh, <laughs> my soul finds rest in God alone for my salvation comes from him. And I probably spent like 15 minutes just, my soul finds rest in God alone. My soul finds rest. God alone. Just a quick side thing. I'm not a restfully sold person. I'm a, I'm a, uh, when, I, when I was getting married, my wife and I, we asked each other, so how would you describe yourself? If you had an animal that would describe yourself, what would you be? She said, I'm a wild stallion galloping by the beach, you know, just, I'm romantic and free spirited. You know what I said? I'm just a little big, be- I'm just a little beaver. I'm a busy little guy. I'm not that big, but my goodness, I'm just running around and, you know, like I got work to do. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just always running around and, and, you know, she's a lot more romantic than I am. But anyway, but for me to say, Paul, your soul is at rest. Oh, busy little beaver. Relax. Your soul is at rest in God alone. For, why? Because my salvation comes from Him. My salvation from my worries, my salvation from my inadequacies, my salvation from my fears, my salvation comes from Him. My salvation does come from Him. And so, yes, my soul finds rest in God alone. I couldn't memorize past the first verse. I was just... Like, how am I going to memorize the whole psalm? I just kept thinking about the first verse. And it's sweet. It's life to my soul. It reminds me. It speaks to me. It takes me there to that gospel world. It is very much like the man who finds treasure in a field or the pearl of great price. All of a sudden, there's nothing more that you want. There's nothing more that you want to pursue. This becomes a very lifeline that frees your soul, changes you from the inside out. What I told my church is my vision is to get you there. To get our church looking like that. Not because I'm telling you, all right, stop worrying about your problems. All right, just give thanks. Come on, everybody. You can do it. Think of you know, like, all right, everybody, just because. No. By preaching the gospel 
of all that God is and all that he's done, that we would feel secure and thankful and generous and in love with God. Because quite honestly, I just don't see too many Christians that look like this. I don't see too many Christians that you... you, You take off the veneer. I see spirit-generated love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. I see the striving and the jealousy and the fits of rage. And I see all that. And Paul says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. My hope this weekend... My hope for my own church and now for yours as well is that this gospel would be so real it changes you from the inside out. The tree grows and bears its fruit. And because you have found such a good God and he is so wonderful and great and mighty. This is where I need to tie it to your theme. Now that you have found such a good God, you have a desire and you have the ability to share him with others. Now you can reach out. But if this gospel is not sweet to you, it's like the used car salesman trying to sell something he doesn't even drive, right? I don't even drive this car, but I'm trying to get you to sign on and buy this thing. You see, no wonder evangelism is not convincing and no wonder we don't feel motivated. It's because we need the gospel first ourselves. We need it until it's so sweet and life changing that it is the most honest and genuine thing for us to say, friend, I have found an answer to our problems. I have found rest for our souls. I have found change in my life and joy abundant. But how shall we be ambassadors of the gospel if we don't even taste it ourselves? What I say to my church is, you've got to first preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach it every day because you know what? You're going to leak. We default back to our self-centered, self-reliant. It's about me and my fears and mine. You got to preach the gospel to yourself. Meditate on the Psalms. Meditate on the promises. Get your soul happy in God. And then preach it to one another. Preach it to one another in your small groups, in your accountability groups. Don't just say, oh, yeah, brother. Yeah, that lust thing's a hard one. I'll just pray for you. No, you got to point them to your Savior. Help each other see God. And I think after you're living in it, and we've got a community that's living in it, then it's only natural that you can share it to the world. It's, it's, It's unstoppable. I mean, how could you not share it to the world? I recently moved, uh, I mentioned to, um, I, we were right in the city, right next to church, but because our family has grown, we've bought a little house out in the burbs. And um, I now, for the first time in my life, 
have like a real non-Christian relationship. This is kind of exciting for me. <laughs> because uh, in my world, and Dave could tell you, I am such a sheltered guy. I mean, I have trouble talking with Christians sometimes. I mean, and so I don't non-Christians. I mean, I'm just, I'm just a really, like. And uh, anyway, but I've got these neighbors and I actually really like them. <laughs> like, I'm really happy that we're neighbors and they've got young kids and, and I feel like it's not just, well, I'm a pastor and finally I can talk about evangelism because you know what? I'm going to have some non-Christian relationships. I feel like I can say to them, forget being a pastor. Forget the hopes of me preaching about evangelism and all that stuff. I feel like I can say with integrity, you know what? I have something in my life that has changed me and is so real. I have something. And I want to share it with you. Harvest, that's the way it's going to, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? It's just, you have the gospel. We're living in the gospel. And now, you have something to give. So let's reach up, reach across, and reach out. Let's pray. You know, I was thinking, I think it's very possible that within a few days, you won't remember any of my sermons. Uh, Maybe you'll remember a few stories, you know, daddy loves you when you're messy or I don't know, you know, maybe you, but put my prayer, my hope is that you've discovered a gospel. And you can forget me and you can forget my messages. But you've caught a glimpse into what the Christian life is supposed to look like. You've caught a glimpse at how central having a Savior is. As you read Scripture, not as a book of application, but a book of promises and a story of who He is and what He does for us. And as you meditate on the promises, claim them and pray through them. As you find security and hope, you find your soul freed. You find that you're more available to love others. You find that you have something to give to this world. Something real. Because what this world needs is not your money, your talents, your career. As wonderful as all of that is, I believe in the redemption of all creation and that's a whole other thing. But the most, what they need most is they need Jesus. And they need to see that in his people. pray that maybe this retreat will at least get you going down the right road where Jesus becomes sweeter 
more beautiful and more glorious and more present and more faithful and more kind and more good and more lovely and more precious. And you find that you love him more and more and you're so thankful for him and he is so good to you. And you don't worry and you're not anxious and you're not undone by your troubles because there is such a good God in your life. And so when scripture says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. You look at that God and you just feel so blessed and unworthy and moved. That if he is our God, we are his people. How can his people not rejoice? How can his people not live in abundance and freedom? How can that not shine in our world of darkness? I'm just going to say a prayer and pass it off to Pastor Dave and the team. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are good to your people. You give rest for my soul. My salvation comes from you. You are my good shepherd, and I shall not want. You lead me to green pastures and quiet waters. You restore my soul. You uphold me with your righteous right hand. Oh, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what you have prepared for those who love you. And what shall separate us from your love? And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And we who are evil fathers know how to give good gifts to our children. How will you not give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Oh, Lord, we look at you and we are humbled and amazed. We worship you and we bow and we repent for our fears and our anxieties and our idolatries. We rest. We find joy in your gospel. And I pray that that would bear its fruit here. Harvest wouldn't have to try to look like an abundant place. Harvest would be an abundant place and there would be the fruits of it. So evident in our lives, in our community, and into the world. May your gospel, may your lordship, may your grace rule and reign in this place. Do it for the praise of your name. We ask this. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.